Hello, and welcome back to the Growing Revolution. I'm Eric with Smart Pot Fabric Planters, and this week our guest is Michael Melendrez of Soil Secrets and Trees That Please in Los Lunas, New Mexico. He's passionate about people, plants, and especially soil health, so we wanted to invite him on the podcast to talk about his journey. So, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thank you for making the time. So uh, kind of getting to the beginning of the story, your father taught you a lot about the importance of soil health. What was he noticing in agriculture back in the day that prompted him to instill that into you as a child? Well, we were farmers and uh, in southern New Mexico, in the uh, area that is known as the chili capital of the world, Hatch, New Mexico. And uh, But he also was a um, farm implement dealer for John Deere. And so he recognized uh, a long time ago when I was a, a little kid that uh, our soils were uh, in decline. You know, they're just, they're just getting worse and worse and worse. And, and he blamed it on the use of fertilizers and uh, the heavy equipment that we were using on our farms that were compacting the soil and also just the constant uh, plowing and laser leveling, which we do in New Mexico because we flood irrigate and we want that water to move evenly across the field. Uh, and he just blamed that on the, uh, the cause of the decline of soil health. So uh, that uh, was a very strong influence on me. Yeah. Well, um, that's cool that you had, you know, a uh an early upbringing into that because most people don't even think about where their food comes from uh, at all. So uh, later in life, uh, can you talk about how you discovered uh, that the foods that we're eating are much lower in actual nutrition versus the same produce 50, 60 years ago? And uh, can you briefly explain why that is the case? And is it better today, the same or worse now than when uh, you kind of learned this back in 1981? Uh, it's probably considerably worse. And, uh, you know, and, and fortunately, we're seeing a movement, uh, a paradigm shift taking place in agriculture where uh, more and more farmers are recognizing that uh, they need to do something uh, to get themselves on the journey to better soil health. But what started me uh, recognizing this situation was you know, already being familiar with soils, you know, growing up on a farm and um, I love soils. You know, I just loved uh, the looking at soils, touching soils. Um, I, Unlike my brother and my sisters, you know, I enjoyed doing gardening in my mom's yard. And uh, so I volunteered to do that kind of stuff because I just loved working with the dirt. And, uh, and so back in 1968, when I was 13 years old, I was in a, a 4-H a, a 4-H club called the Eagles 4-H club in Doniana uh, County, Southern New Mexico. And I wanted to compete in the soil judging contest uh, on the state level, uh, which I did. Uh, and my father was the one who said, I can teach you how to do that. And so he took me all over the place and showed me, uh, you know, uh, how to judge soils, looking at the texture of soil. Uh, you're manipulating it through your fingertips and, looking at the percentage, or you're estimating the percentage of sand, silt, and clay. And uh, and uh, consequently, uh, being trained by my dad, I won the blue ribbon for the state B 
beating out kids that were a lot older than me. But while we were doing this, we were down on our hands and knees digging a hole in somebody's field. And my dad scooped up a hand, a handful of soil and was looking at it. And he said to me, you know, Michael, everything we do in farming damages this. We need to do a better job of taking care of our soil. And so that, that had a, a profound uh, impact on me that stayed with me into my college years and after college, um, where I was uh, uh, developing a wellness company. My, my, my uh, ed education at that time was in, uh, in human wellness, adult, uh, adult wellness, uh, looking at all the different um, variables uh, such as mental wellness, uh, physical fitness, diet, etc. And so I started a company called Corpora Fit Systems. And one of the modalities uh, being diet required that we had to figure out a way to analyze somebody's diet. Well, we did this by taking the USDA uh, data on how much nutrition should be in any given food, you know, how much vitamin C is in an orange, how much calcium is in an apple, et cetera, et cetera. And we plugged all that information into some software that I designed uh, called NutriFit that would uh, allow us to break down somebody's diet, analyzing it and giving some feedback to them in a printed report that would say, okay, you're getting enough of uh, this nutrient, uh, not enough of that nutrient, you need more protein, et cetera, et cetera. And so, but remember, this is all based on USDA information. So I became a little bit uh, concerned that maybe this information wasn't entirely accurate. So uh, I started sending off samples of fresh fruits and vegetables, including uh, stuff that was grown organically. And I sent it to a food research lab and asked them to analyze it and tell me, you know, how much, how much uh, nutri uh, nutrition is in this stuff. And the reports that I got back revealed that uh, they were nowhere close to what the USDA said they should be at. Uh, anywhere from 20, 25, 30% lower than what the USDA said. So I'm like, wow, you know, even if you're attempting to uh, eat a reasonable diet, um, are you getting a reasonable diet? And, and the answer is, of course not, because our food quality has been compromised. How did it get compromised? Well, going back to the same thing my dad said, it's all about the soil. If, if, we're, not, if we're not treating the soil properly, if we're not feeding the soil, nurturing the natural process, then the soil is only going to go in one direction, and that's downhill. So uh, I made a decision at that point that I was going to change my career path. And instead of working with corporations and trying to get their employees healthy and really working with employees one-on-one, -on -one, I needed to look at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is, you know, the 7 billion people living on this planet. And and how, uh, how do we uh, affect them? and uh, in improving their health and their diet. And the only way to do that is to work with the soil. Let's, let's find a way to improve the health of the soil. So that's when I started uh, researching uh, uh, soils. Now, keep in mind, I, I started off in soils. You know, I, when I first went into college, my, my field of study was in uh, soils and uh, agronomy and horticulture. And uh, I didn't finish in that because my advisor uh, convinced me that I was majoring in the wrong thing. So uh, 
and this advisor, his name was uh, Dr. Boyce Williams. He was a soil science professor at New Mexico State University. And in 1974, as a freshman student there, I wrote a paper for him. Uh, and the title of the paper was Soil Ecology and the Soil Food Web. And I, I basically described the trophic levels of life in the soil, uh, the microbes and who they are and, uh, you know, who's bigger than who and who's going to get eaten by who. And, and uh, every time somebody gets consumed by somebody else, there's always a, uh, an excess of uh, stuff that's going to flow into the soil environment and become uh, a nutrient for a plant or for somebody else. And so... Uh, the, the paper was a pretty lousy paper, to tell you the truth, but it got the point across in what I believed in. And uh, Dr. Williams, when he was grading it, he called me into his office and he says, what is this crap? <laughs> he says, this is a soil science class, and this is not science. You need to go write me another paper. And uh, he opened up his desk drawer and pulled out a rubber stamp. You remember rubber stamps? Oh, yeah. and, and inked it and put a grade on my paper and the grade he gave me was BS bullshit. <laughs> so I had to write another paper for him. But what I described as a soil food web is what we're still talking about today. Absolutely. And uh, it, it's pretty much identical to what I was de uh, describing back in 1974. So anyway, uh, that was my beginning. And then uh, <clears throat> later on, Dr. Williams called me into his office and he says, Michael, you need to change your degree. You're wasting your talent in this field. You know you're way too intelligent um, to be to be in this field. You need to you need to go into something like engineering or chemistry or something that's going to take advantage of your of your potential. And uh, so that kind of shook me up because uh, I didn't have a whole lot of other interests at that time other than uh, well. And here's uh, a professor in that field discouraging you from entering yeah. the the field. That's insane. Yeah, really. So I played the trombone. I was a musician. Oh, nice. And, I uh, used to play the trombone as a kid. Yep. Yeah, so I, I actually played the trombone. I was on a music scholarship at New Mexico State University. and uh, But I realized that uh, there were a lot of people out there that were a heck, heck of a lot better than me. And, uh, and so my future as a, as a professional trombone player was uh, not promising. <laughs> so uh, the other thing that I was involved in at the time was athletics. You know, I competed in wrestling. And uh, ran track, and I ran marathons, and did tri uh, uh, Ironman triathlons, and uh, competed in powerlifting. And so I enjoyed, you know, trying to make my body a stronger and better body. And uh, despite my shortcomings of not being a very big man, I, I'm only five foot seven. And uh, my my dad, who was much taller than me, you know, he used to joke and say, "Well, that Michael, he might be small, but he is slow." <laughs> so, you know, I I tried hard uh, to be an athlete, but uh, I was just uh, mediocre at it at best. But anyway, so my second choice of uh, of, a, of a field of study was uh, sports medicine. And in 1974, 75, 76, there really wasn't a, such a thing as sports medicine. You couldn't really get a degree in that. Right. And uh, so the closest thing you can get a degree in uh, was physical therapy. And so I, I changed uh, my universities and went to Albuquerque to the University of New Mexico and got enrolled in the uh, corrective physical therapy program. And uh, 
and finished up my undergraduate degree in that field. And, uh, and so that, that's what really led me into the, uh, uh, the wellness uh, concept and working with occupational and, and uh, corporate wellness yeah. was uh, having, a, having a study the uh, corrective physical therapy. So uh, anyway, um, I went back to soil. And uh, I like to say that I kind of snuck into the, into the soil business through the back door. And, uh, and so I, I began studying soils. And I remembered a, an, an experience that I had as a freshman uh, taking a horticulture class where we were supposed to learn how to adjust the pH of the water so that the fertilizer would work. And uh, we were, the, the, the subject matter was a type of tree, little seedlings, called a liquid amber or the sweet gum tree. They're native to the southeastern states and uh, usually a bottomland tree. They'd like, they grow in wet soils. They don't grow in New Mexico. But for some reason, the professor who was teaching this class had a bunch of seed of sweet gum, and that, that's what we were going to grow and learn how to adjust the pH of the water. And uh, obviously, if, the, if you weren't getting the, the, the formula right, if you weren't getting that pH adjusted just right, the fertilizer doesn't work, and the seedling then uh, doesn't get what it needs, and it fails. So anyway, the, the seedlings all died on us. And uh, we never could keep those darn seedlings alive. And uh, years later, while, while uh, getting into the tree business, I, I was really fascinated by the, the genus of oaks, Quercus. Albuquerque uh, means white oak. Alba for white and Quirque is the Spanish derivative of the Latin um, Quercus. And so the Spanish people who uh, settled Albuquerque in the 1600s, there were a lot of oak trees around Albuquerque, or, well, where Albuquerque is now. And so they gave it the uh, formal name Albuquerque, a place of oaks or a place of white oaks. So I was very fascinated with oaks, and I started writing a lot of other people around the world who were also fascinated with oaks. And we became pen pals. This is before the Internet. And uh, we would even ship each other acorns. Uh, so that we could grow uh, our own collection of oak trees. So I ended up growing a collection of oak trees from all over the world. I have oak trees from Iran, from Romania, from Mexico, um, Vancouver, Canada, you name it. I, got, I have 47 different kinds of oaks growing in my collection. Wow. But anyway, while doing this, I met a fellow from Aiken, South Carolina, who had a nursery called Woodlanders. And uh, he was also one of our pen pals. And, and uh, knowing that the sweet gum, liquid amber, grows in that area, I asked him, I said, hey, what's the trick to growing that, that sweet gum tree? Because this is what happened to us when I was taking this horticulture class. And he says, well, what we do is we go out into the woods and we find a young sapling. And uh, we dig it up, and it'll have real fleshy roots, real watery fleshy roots. And we take it back to the house. And uh, we put the roots into the wife's blender when she's not looking and blend them all up and make a puree. And then we will strain the puree through a strainer basket and collect off the water. And then we'll water the seedlings, the germinating seed, we'll water it with that. And that solves your problem. And I'm like, wow. I mean, uh, what, what's in that juice that, uh, that solved that problem? He goes, I don't know, but it works every time. He goes, and you can do it with any tree, any tree, any, any native plant. 
Um, if you're having trouble growing it, go out and find a wild one and dig up the roots and grind up the roots and water the, water the seedlings with the, with that juice, and it'll it'll always work. So I started doing that, and son of a gun, if it didn't work, and uh, so then I thought I started uh, uh, digging deeper into it and uh, started sending off uh, um, uh, samples of the microbes or the juice, I should say, to uh, um, different individuals, uh, different universities where I, be I began uh, having conversations with microbiologists and who had the ability to look at it on a molecular biology level and identify who are the microbes in that juice. And, uh, and so you have a category of microbes that live on the surface of the roots, but you also have a category that live inside the root. Uh, those living inside are called endophytic bacterium. And so we started learning who these microbes are, not quite knowing exactly what they're doing for that plant, but assuming that they're providing a benefit to the plant. Right. Um, and, and so that was our uh, um, birthing into the uh, discovery process of, of, of microbiology in soils and plants. And uh, well, today, you know, we've gotten a lot more knowledgeable about it, and we can refer to uh, uh, reference libraries like the American Type Culture Collection, who are the global um, resource on on microbiology, and uh, we can, um, you know, we can go to them and say, "Well, I'm interested in this particular type of bacteria, and what can you tell me about it? What does it do for a plant? And uh, does it make an, a particular enzyme? Does it make a uh, uh, a chelating agent called a cerutophore?" What exactly does it do, and how do we propagate more of them? And they'll teach you. They'll teach you how to do it. So, um, you know, today, you know, we've 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 gone uh, uh, into the stratosphere of, of of playing with microbes. And in fact, uh, uh, I don't know if you can see this very well, but it looks like um, uh, dehydrated mashed potatoes. Sure. This is a hundred percent bacteria. And so I grew this in my lab, uh, creating a bacteria serum using uh, known bacteria. I've done a metagenomics on this and uh, using Texas Tech University. And there are hundreds of species of bacteria in here. And we know who, exactly who they are. Uh, we know, uh, if you look at this like a, on, a, on a pie chart, uh, the, the demographics, I, I should say, of, uh, of the microbial world, then you can see what percentage of that pie chart, how big of a slice of pie does each uh, functional group of microbes take up in that, in that uh, arena. And so uh, there's enough bacteria in here to treat about 1,000 acres of land, of farmland. Pretty amazing, isn't it? It really is. So, uh, and, and so what we did here is we first we grew them and uh, grew them in our lab, and we make a serum. And uh, so you can see the level here. They're starting to settle out. And then we, we freeze dry them, put them into a commercial freeze dryer and, and freeze drying them into this. Why would we freeze dry them? Well, because freeze dried, uh, they'll live forever. Uh, they're in a dormant state, of course, but uh, they're still alive. And they become active again once we rehydrate them. And this is 100% miscible in water. So in other words, uh, if we add it to water, we can run it through a, uh, a drip irrigation system and uh, it, it can pass through uh, 
very, very, very fine filters. Um, so, uh, you know, that's what, you know, we've gone from uh, digging up trees in the wild, <laughs> you know, to harvest the bacteria to let's just grow them in our lab. Let's yeah. figure out, first of all, who are the bacteria and, uh, and how can we uh, uh, acquire a reference of a ref what we call a reference material of those species. And then we grow them, we grow them in the lab. That's what we're doing now. So we also use them to liquefy calcium. So that's liquid calcium. So now calcium is a limiting factor of, uh, see that? Calcium is a limiting factor to plant health. Um, and so if you're growing uh, a crop in a, a region of the country that has high pH soils, you probably have a, a lot of calcium carbonate in the soil, but you can still have um, bitter pit in apples or um, blossom in rot in tomatoes, which is basically a, a problem of a failure to pick up calcium out of the soil. Right. Even though your soils are dominated by calcium, you can still have that problem. And, uh, and so what we're basically looking at is how can we um, find a, a microbial solution to the calcium problem where we can take a rock, you know, calcium carbonate, and uh, this product was actually made from uh, travertine. Uh, you know what travertine is? Marble. It's a type of marble, right? It's a type of marble, yeah. So uh, it's a very beautiful rock, and not far from uh, my office, there's a travertine mine, a quarry. And so when they're sawing those blocks of travertine, which they're going to take somewhere and polish them and make beautiful panels or beautiful floors or whatever, uh, the sawings is a real fine uh, powder. And uh, now that powder won't dissolve in water because water is not a solvent to calcium carbonate or to calcium sulfate. Farmers all over the country will buy calcium uh, carbonate, lime, limestone, or sul uh, calcium sulfate, gypsum, and put it in their fields trying to solve the problem of not getting enough calcium. They spend a ton of money on that. Doesn't yeah. work or it works poorly. And it's because water is not a solvent for those two types of calciums. So, but if we can get bacteria involved, then the bacteria can actually get in there and uh, take the calcium away from the carbonate or away from the sulfate and uh, chelate it onto a cerutophore. Uh, cerutophore is a small affinity chelating factor that will hold it in this chelated form. Basically, it's nanotechnology, but it's, but it's nature's nanotechnology. It's not us building nanoparticles. Um, and, uh, and it will basically hold it in that, in that uh, configuration so that a plant can drink it. You gotta remember that a plant drinks only one thing, water. And so if that element, calcium, iron, zinc, phosphorus, potassium, whatever, is not in a form that it can stay in solution. It's not miscible in water. There's no way for it to get into that plant. Right. Right? So that's what we're doing. We're making calcium miscible in water so the plant can uptake it and solves your calcium problem. Yeah. And uh, so now I'm not particularly interested in, in making this for a farmer. Uh, I can if they want me to, but I'm more interested in – creating the uh, 
the microbes that they can put down and let them do it on their own on their own fields. So yeah. this is the path of least resistance because this is only going to cost the farmer uh, maybe around twenty to thirty dollars an acre, and that's all. And also in here is going to be a free living nitrogen fixing bacteria. Uh, and, uh, those are, uh, bacteria that don't need a root system like your, uh, the bacteria that associate with your legumes, uh, they're, uh, that are capable of fixing nitrogen, but those have to have a legume. These don't, these can do it in the soil without a plant. And, uh, so you have free living nitrogen fixing bacteria, and then you have hundreds of other species. Uh, this is very, very di uh, diverse. So, um, we have sold this, uh, or, or sold the bacteria um, freeze-dried in a freeze-dried packet like that, that's 50 grams, and uh, that'll treat an acre of land. So that's uh, that's the bacteria story. Nice. So we're, we're trying to look at, you know, looking at this from every possible angle. And uh, what, are the, what are the inputs that farmers have been trying to use that sometimes work and many times don't work, and having grown up on a farm and watching my dad going through the frustration of trying to be profitable, uh, and you know, my dad used to say, you know, farming is the only business where we buy all of our inputs retail and then turn around and sell the final product wholesale. I've heard that phrase many right. times. Yeah, so so it's, it's difficult <laughs> to make a profit uh, and be sustainable. And you know, of course, without profitability, you can't have sustainability, right? So my goal as, a, as, a, as the owner of Soil Secrets is to f create inputs that are affordable, that work not just every once in a while, they work every time. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and also they get, that, they get that farmer on the journey to, uh, you know, to better soil health. Yeah. How many uh, species of microbes are you cultivating currently? Well, uh, <laughs> there's hundreds in here, hundreds. And we, we gladly will show uh, anybody who wants to see it, the metagenomics on this. So uh, uh, we, we, we intentionally uh, can grow. If we wanted to isolate it, uh, we could probably pick, uh, let's say, the top three or the top five. And uh, that we have a known benefit to a plant mm -hmm. and cultivate those. And, uh, you know, we could do it that way, too. And a lot of companies will do it that way. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that's, that's fine. Uh, but I, I tend to go uh, both sides. I, do, I, I hit it from both directions. So we, we do uh, claim in this um, three different species uh, where we will declare uh, and guarantee how many colony forming units there are of those three. But we will also show you the metagenomics on who, who else is in there. Nice. And it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, so, I, I think the more the merrier, the more diversity in microbes you have, the more functions that are being performed in your soil uh, can only benefit the plant. So, yeah. Uh, I heard a uh, an interesting story that that you told to uh, Dustin, my coworker, about transforming a toxic soil property into basically now a flourishing arboretum. 
uh, even though that you were told by your college professor, I think the same guy you mentioned before, uh, that you won't be able to grow anything on that land. Um, did he ever see the transformation that you made and, and how did you do it? Well, um, yeah, this was, uh, I was looking for a piece of land that I could uh, build a home on in 1985. And, uh, I wanted to get out of Albuquerque. I didn't want to live in the city. So I wanted to go 20 miles, 30 miles South of Albuquerque into the, into the Valley, uh, where I could have a little bit more land, maybe put a small orchard in, grow some food and, and, uh, live a more rural lifestyle. And so I found, I found some property and, uh, it was summertime and there was a lot of weeds growing there. There wasn't any, uh, irrigation going on or nobody attempting to grow something on that land. It was growing a lot of, uh, filled bindweed. I don't know if you know what filled bindweed is, but it's a terrible, terrible weed. It's related to the morning glory. Oh, and, okay. uh, but it's a perennial and, uh, it'll grow in the most nasty of nasty soils. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I bought the land and, uh, started planting trees and everything I planted died. Now I already had a tree farm. I started a tree farm, uh, two years earlier, uh, 20 miles South of that site and was growing just regular old, uh, street trees that uh, the landscape architects in Albuquerque were uh, spe uh, specifying. And uh, so we would buy the, the trees as liners from a company out of Oregon, bring them in already pretty big, plant them in the ground, let them grow for a couple of years, ball and burlap them, and then sell them to the landscapers. And uh, so I had a lot of trees. So I was planting trees on this land and everything died. So I'm like, well, what the heck, you know, what's going on here? So I, uh, and, and every time I would dig a hole, um, it was an ordeal to digging a hole. This clay uh, required a concrete buster to dig through. And uh, when dry, it was hard as a rock. And when wet, it was awful, really sticky. And, uh, you know, you stick a shovel into it and you couldn't get it back out. Wow. So, uh, I would try to uh, dig a $100 hole, you know, to say dig a humongous hole, dig all that nasty clay out of it, mix it with a bunch of organic matter, soil builder, peat moss, that kind of stuff, put it back in the hole, plant your tree, and the tree would die. And I would excavate the dead tree out, and it would smell like a rotting corpse. Right. You know, all that organic matter had gone anaerobic, and right. it was rotting anaerobically and the roots of the tree were rotting anaerobically and uh the in my attempt to, to add all that organic matter to improve drainage i was doing the opposite i was actually hurting drainage and so the holes got bigger <laughs> you know i just i just dug them deeper and uh, i'd dig a hole five feet deep then get down to the bottom of that hole with a with an auger with a, a hand hand auger uh -huh. and auger down another three feet you know, to try to get drainage. And then I'd fill that augered hole with gravel. Okay. And, and it didn't work, still rotted on me. Wow. So, uh, but as I was digging these holes, I noticed there was a lot of white stuff in the, in the clay. And there was layers of it, layers of this, these white uh, lenses, I guess you could say. And, uh, and I thought, well, it's just calcium because we, we, you know, the pH of our soils in, in New Mexico are very, very high because of the high calcium. 
And uh, the parent rock of our souls is limestone off the top of our mountains. Anyway, winter, winter time came around and the soil turned white. It looked like it snowed. And I realized my problem wasn't uh, that it was clay. My problem was that it was dispersed clay, clay that had collapsed on itself because of the high salts. And the salts were precipitating out on the surface. We call that white alkali or white death. And you, you can't grow anything in that. Right. And uh, so you don't see it until wintertime. You don't see it in the summertime. So I started pulling soil samples, had them analyzed, and found out that uh, I had a saline, sodic, alkaline clay, the vicious triad of horrible soil. <laughs> and uh, when if, whenever a farmer has that kind of soil, they, they, they don't try to farm it. So I sent the analysis down to Dr. Williams, Boyce Williams at New Mexico State, and said, what do you think? And uh, he called me up and he goes, what the hell, Mike? What are you doing? You know, didn't, didn't I teach you better than that? And I'm like, well, yeah. Didn't I discourage I... you from growing <laughs> plants? Yeah. I said, well, can I fix it? And he goes, no. You cannot fix that. that uh, you can't fix white alkali. I recommend you put a for sale sign on that property and, and go somewhere else. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I'm pretty stubborn. And uh, he, that was a challenge to me. And I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to prove him wrong. I'm going to fix it. And so uh, I started, uh, again, using my microbial concoctions and playing with my, my uh, rudimentary knowledge of humic acids and fulvic acid. Do you know what fulvic acid is? Yeah, it's like the more refined version of humic acid, right? More, more brown, amber. Yeah, it's kind of see how that's yellow in color. So that's that's fulvic acid, and so fulvic acid uh, comes from the Greek word uh, fulvate, which means yellow. So if you take uh, uh, oxidized lignite coal, which is a very low quality coal that can't burn in a power plant, they call it humane also. And if you take that and uh, grind it up into a, a powder, and then uh, run a lot of hot water through it. It works better if the water is uh, reverse osmosis water um, because reverse osmosis water is ion starved. So it's going to strip mm -hmm. uh, the humate of, of anything that isn't tightly bound, you know, to the humate particles and you'll get a yellow water, right? That, thus the word fulvate. Mm -hmm. And if you stick a pH meter in there, it's going to have a pH of about three. So it's an acidic yellow water, and we, the industry, the, the fertilizer industry calls it fulvic acid. But that's implying that there's actually a molecule in there that's doing something of value, and, uh, and not just yellow water that's acidic. You, know, you have to remember that water has no buffering capacity. So if I ran um, pure water through uh, limestone, uh, if I ground the limestone, the limestone is going to have a pH of 8.2. And so if I had reverse osmosis water and I ran it through limestone, I'm going to get a water with a pH of 8.2. The water is going to match the limestone, not mm -hmm. the other way around. And so since humate or oxidized lignite has a pH of anywhere from 3 to 4, um, when you run water through it, you're going to get a yellow water with a pH of 3 to 4. 
And uh, but what's in it? Well, not much. And uh, and how do I know that? Well, because um, I analyzed it, and I did what's called a molecular characterization study using the help of Los Alamos National Laboratories and Sandia National Laboratories. But anyway, before I ever did that, because I didn't start that project until 1998, um, I was buying uh, raw humate and, and fulvic acid from companies that made it and was using lots of it on my land uh, trying to bioremediate uh, the white alkali. And then I was also buying uh, uh, bacteria and uh, from the American Type Culture Collection and also growing some of my own. Remember, this is back in the 80s. I hadn't gotten very good at what, I was, what I'm doing today. I there's no comparison. And, uh, and I was saturating the ground with this stuff. And, and then I was also feeding the ground protein. So because I, my theory was uh, that many of these bacteria that are the best bacteria for bioremediating damaged soils, their food of preference is protein, amino acids. Mm -hmm. Amino acids are the building blocks of all life, not sugars. So uh, it's interesting because a lot of organic farmers now will talk about using molasses, you know, to help feed the, the microbes in the soil or they'll put it in their compost tea. And actually, there are very, very few uh, soil bacteria that can eat sugar. There are some nasty pathogenic uh, microbes like uh, candida yeast that can eat sugar and uh, we don't want to be feeding them and encouraging them because they also will eat the roots of your plant mm. so uh, using uh, uh, molasses as a way to feed uh, soil biology is a bad idea um, but protein does work so what was i using for protein in that, at that time well i would take uh, pinto beans and which is a favorite food in the Southwest, you know, Mexican food. If you go to a Mexican restaurant, there's, there's going to be pinto beans on the plate also, right? Oh, yeah. And we grow pinto beans in the Southwest. We grow them in New Mexico. We grow them in Colorado. And uh, so they're easy to acquire. And what I would do is just run them through a hammer mill and uh, turn it into a, 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 a granular uh, meal. Mm -hmm. and spread that on the ground and as a way of fertilizing the ground, providing a slow-release nitrogen because inside protein is nitrogen, right? And, uh, and also, if you go back to the, the study of the soil food web, the microbes that are in the soil, their bodies contain protein. And when, the, when, those, when those microbes die, that protein goes into that uh, food web and uh, as amino acids, the protein breaks down as amino acids, and some of that amino acids then become part of the nitrogen budget of plants. They can pick it up. Mm -hmm. So I was just doing it with pinto beans. And slowly the soils got better and better and better, and my tree started living. And then my, my, my selection, my, my collection of trees got better and better, bigger and bigger, and... Uh, Eventually, I got to the point where um, um, I was able to grow. Uh, do you know what a metasequoia is? The metasequoia is a ancestral redwood. Uh, it's it's the prehistoric redwood that today uh, the California redwoods evolved from. Okay. 
And uh, in the 1940s, they found a grove of them in a hidden valley in the interior of China that had not gone extinct. They were, they were still, uh, it was like finding a, a Tyrannosaurus, you know, in a lost valley. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, the Metasequoia, or the common name is Dawn Redwood, it prefers to grow in a very healthy soil. It doesn't like to grow in an alkaline soil. It hates salt and it hates sodium. And uh, so thinking of growing it in New Mexico is a crazy idea because our soils are just not the right soils for it. Well, I have a grove of Dawn Redwoods in my collection that are 70 feet tall now. Wow. The seed came from the Hidden Valley in China. I actually sponsored an expedition into China to collect seed off of the last 33 wild trees. And I brought that seed back to New Mexico, germinated it, and planted it in my collection. Wow. And they're growing in what was formerly uh, white alkali, but it's not white alkali anymore. In fact, if you were to do a, an analysis of the soils and look for how much carbon is now in that, uh, in that soil, on a per acre basis going one foot deep, uh, I've extrapolated the numbers and uh, calculated that there's 360 pounds, 360,000 pounds of carbon in that soil now. Where'd that carbon come from? Carbon sequestration out of the atmosphere. I basically created a pedogenesis on that site. Pedogenesis, the word pedo means uh, uh, soil, and genesis, of course, means creation. So I created a soil creation uh, terraforming process on that site. So the soils now are rich and black in color and are very crumbly and have beautiful structure, beautiful aroma. And uh, I have maples, sugar maples, uh, California coastal redwood, California mountain redwoods, the, Sierra, the giant sequoia. Um, and the coastal redwood is growing there that has survived 22 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Really? On that site. Coastal redwood can't tolerate below zero temperatures, period. No. Mine do. How? Soils. The, the soils have made them so healthy, they can tolerate the cold. That's insane. I have, I have giant timber bamboo from Japan. This is the bamboo that can get 100 feet tall with culms that big around. I have that growing there. Nice. And... Uh, as well as the 47 different species of oak from all over the world. Amazing. And uh, growing on what Dr. Boyce Williams said could not be fixed. Yeah. Did he ever apologize to you uh, or, you know, give he, you a pat he, on the back at least? No, he passed away uh, a long time ago before he ever had a chance to see it. Hmm. So well, uh, hopefully he's looking down uh, from yeah. wherever he is and uh, let's hope smiling. so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it's a, it's a beautiful site and I've, I've had uh, people from all over the world uh, uh, come and tour it. And uh, I, uh, that Oak organization I was telling you about earlier um, that became the international Oak society, which I'm one of the founders of. We formalized the society in 1994 uh, where all of us pen pals decided to meet at the Morton Arboretum in Chicago uh, 
and uh, see each other face to face for the first time. And 185 people showed up. Nice. Well, today it's a worldwide organization. We have members in China, Taiwan, Japan, Mexico, Argentina, all over Europe, um, Africa, Australia, New Zealand. It's a big organization now. We just hosted the uh, co- uh, we have a conference every third year, and uh, this past August we hosted the conference in New Mexico, and uh, where we did a. Uh, a pre and a post conference tour of the oak woodlands of New Mexico. Nice. We have a lot of oaks in New Mexico. I don't know if you may not know that, but uh, uh, we have a lot of species of oaks in in, uh, in New Mexico. Very cool. So, and yeah, so that's kind of one of my feathers in my cap is that I started that organization. And uh, but you know, like we continue to do what we do, you know, by learning more and more about soils, and you know, we don't want to get stagnant. And uh, that there's a lot more we have to learn. In fact, in, in sure. uh, 2013, uh, there was a worldwide conference on soils in Aust- Austria called the uh, the world's first humus experts meeting. And I was the invited uh, speaker to represent North America. And uh, so one of the first things I said to this audience of uh, soil scientists and agronomists and uh, carbon uh, carbon people who are into the, the biochar and all that kind of stuff is I said, uh, well, uh, I hate to disappoint you all, but I am not an expert on uh, soils. Uh, none of us are. You know, that all of us are at the very bottom of the learning curve here, and we have a lot to learn. And so if, you, if you're not willing to accept the fact that uh, you're, you're at the bottom of this learning curve, then you're, you're not going to learn. So uh, keep, your, keep your mind open. And so uh, that's kind of how I've approached it all these years. And, and that's also why I got very curious about fulvic acid and uh, <clears throat> humic acid and uh, started you know, reading the literature on it. And I discovered that nobody has ever found it. There is no molecular description of humic acid or fulvic acid in the uh, compendium database of chemistry. You know, if you're a professional chemist and you want to know what a molecule looks like, you go to the compendium database called the cash registry mm-hmm. and, and look at that molecule. It doesn't exist. And so I thought, well, wow, you know, we're, we're selling humic acids to farmers. What are we selling them? Or we're selling fulvic acid. What are we selling them? If we don't even know what it is, and and the method of analysis that uh, the the state agencies require us to use, so that we can put a, a a number on the label, you know what percent humic acid or what percent fulvic acid. There's no standardized method of analysis for doing that. Right. And uh, and so it's a guess. We're just guessing. It's kind of like if I wanted to know the population of Albuquerque, but I didn't have the time or the money to go door to door and count everybody. So instead, I got on Google Earth. And uh, and I looked at the, the, the city of Albuquerque from the air and said, well, it covers 110 square miles. And guessing that there's so many people per square mile, the population is this. Right. How accurate is that going to be? Yeah. Not very accurate, and but that's essentially what we're doing with humic acid analysis is we're just guessing. Yeah. 
So that's when I went to uh, Sandia and Los Alamos Labs and said, can you, can you guys analyze this stuff and help me figure out what, 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 it, what, is it, what is it really? Why does it work? You know, what are the molecular characteristics of it and the geometry of the molecules? And, uh, and so they, they agreed to do that for me. And, uh, and we got it accomplished. So it's, it's, uh, we're now able to actually make a real humic acid product because of that knowledge that we have on it. Yeah. So this, this was done using a, um, a molecular characterization study under contract. A contract is called a, uh, a commercial proprietary information contract. The national labs will do that for, for commercial entities. If you didn't know, Los Alamos Labs is where they invented and built the first atomic bomb. Yep. The Manhattan Project. So New Mexico is lucky in that we have two of the largest, most expensive uh, national nuclear labs in the United States, are both in New, Mex in New Mexico. And uh, they can do stuff that no university can do. Well, it's so, uh, that's priceless to have that access uh, close by uh, to you, and um, you know, kind of getting into the to the Humix, uh, you've got a product TerraPro, and uh, can you explain how you came up with it and how it's different from other products that are available? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I was actually trying to uh, patent a liquid humic acid. And I had a provisional patent on it. And my claim was that I had figured out how to extract from humate the humic acid fraction without using a solvent. The solvent being a, a powerful uh, 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 high pH chemical like potassium hydroxide or sodium hydroxide. Uh, that's basically what Drano is. You know, if you're if you got a plugged up drain in your in your bath in your bathroom, you buy Drano and pour it in there, and it dissolves whatever's plugging it up, hair or whatever's in there, uh, because it's a solvent. It's a very powerful uh, uh, base extraction, basically. So, if you take your finger and dip it into um, a liquid bottle of potassium hydroxide and stir it pull your finger out, you'll just have a bone hanging there. Mm -hmm. It'll, it'll dissolve it pretty fast. Mm -hmm. So it, to me, it sounded crazy that we would liquefy humate with that nasty of a chemical and then put it on farm soil and, and claim it's going to do something beneficial to that farm soil. And, uh, it just didn't make any sense. And not only that, but we're, you know, we're calling it humic acid, implying that it's going to be acidic. But if you stick a pH meter into it, it's going to be highly alkaline, not acidic. It'll be the opposite. Mm -hmm. It'll have a high pH. So anyway, I, I, was, I worked with uh, enzymes that came from uh, different kinds of white rot fungi and uh, was able to uh, liquefy humate using those enzymes. And I wanted to patent it. And uh, But I had to also prove that there was actually humic acid in that liquid and not just carbon making it black. Mm -hmm. So that's why I went to the national laboratories to help me do that. And I first offered this research grant to universities 
I offered it to every university in the country that I could find that had a soil lab. I gave them a statement of work and my what my deliverables were that I wanted back. And the universities that bothered to answer me basically said, we don't know, we don't know how to do that. So that kind of explained to me why we don't know how to do that, right? <laughs> because the, the universities don't know how to do it. And so uh, that's when I turned to Los Alamos Labs. I went to Los Alamos Labs first, and uh, and I had to get Sandia involved because Sandia has equipment that Los Alamos does not have. So we had to get them both involved. Anyway, uh, so so going back to what the heck is humic acid, if I'm claiming that my product has humic acid, I got to first discover what humic acid is. So we started pulling soil samples from pristine soil sites that had not been disturbed, had not been farmed, um, that had a, a fairly deep topsoil. And we um, collected that soil and sent it to the labs, and the labs then purified from the soil the fraction of that, uh, what we call the recalcitrant carbon fraction. The, rec the recalcitrant fraction is that part of the humus that will not decay. So in humus, when we look at topsoil, the stuff that's making that soil look dark in color or even black is humus. And some people say, well, stable humus. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Um, you have two types of humus. You have humus that is going to rapidly break down, uh, be eaten by microbes or oxidize and turn back into carbon dioxide. That's called labile carbon. And then you have the other kind of carbon that will persist in the soil for thousands of years. It is not food for microbes. It will not oxidize. It will not break down and turn into carbon dioxide. It does accumulate. So that's the fraction that we call humic substances. So we purified that from the soil using techniques similar to what we use in medicine when we're purifying uh, enzymes out of your body or uh, for example, uh, Dr. Sidney Pesca, who was the first person to describe interferon, which is part of our immune system. He had to do a purification to get it out of our body before he could do a molecular characterization. So we used a, 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 a similar process so that we wouldn't damage. The, if there was a molecule in there that was doing something, that was significant. We didn't want to damage it before we had a chance to analyze it. That makes sense. Yep. So that's what we did, and uh, and then we also analyzed my liquid and my granular. At the time, we called it Earth Magic, not TerraPro, and uh, using the same technique to basically see. Had I made something that was bioidentical to what is in the soil? And the answer was no. I had failed. And uh, But it gave me the knowledge I needed to have in order to make it bioidentical. So what TerraPro is today is a bioidentical substance of carbon molecules. I call it a carbon matrix. I really don't like the term humic acid. We have to use it because in order to register the label in places like California, the only term they, they recognize is humic acid.
And so I have to use a method of analysis that they approve and then put a number on that bag saying this is what percent humic acid it contains. Right. And uh, so and that particular method is called the CDFA method uh, for California. The, 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 the bag of TerraPro is going to come out at 45% humic acid. In reality, it's 100% carbon matrix. And, uh, and so the carbon matrix are actually molecules that are supramolecular. That basically means that these molecules are of various sizes and they will self-assemble into a bigger substance called a supramolecular substance. And they do this on their own without an outside influence. So this is sort of like thinking about uh, if you had a puzzle of uh, 10,000 pieces and when you put the puzzle together, it's the Mona Lisa. So if you were to take that puzzle and dump it on, the, on your kitchen floor in a big pile of pieces, and then you leave and go to have lunch somewhere, when you get back from lunch, the, the puzzle has put itself together. Mm -hmm. And you can mess it all up, and it'll do it again, and it'll put it back together exactly the same way. So when the carbon matrix is that way also, it puts itself together exactly the same way every time. Isn't that amazing? And these molecules are generating an electrical charge. They're, they're massive induced magnetic fields. And that's what makes them work. Yeah. Uh, one of their characteristics that benefits us in the Southwest, because water isn't uh, real common out here, you know, we have to irrigate to grow a crop. And we, um, if you go to some place like Saudi Arabia, you know, where they're pumping groundwater to grow alfalfa out in the desert, um, this would really benefit them in a huge way. Uh, the electrical charge of TerraPro can attract and hold water. It's a powerful humectant. So one way of understanding what we say about um, an electrical charge holding water is if you were to take a, an empty water bottle, if I took this Gatorade bottle once, it's, once I'm done drinking it, and uh, if I were to rub it on a stack of paper towels vigorously for a few minutes, and while I'm doing that, I turn on my water faucet to my kitchen sink, so I'm getting a slow stream of water. And after rubbing and rubbing and rubbing and rubbing and rubbing for quite a while, if I hold that water bottle next to that stream of water, the water will bend and go towards the bottle because mm -hmm. I built up a charge in this bottle. So the carbon matrix does the same thing. It's building up a charge, which is going to attract water. But not only does it attract water, it's a polar substance. It has a positive and a negative uh, part of the molecule. So it can attract the, the, the uh, if you have a nutrient that has a negative charge, it can be attracted to the po positive side of the molecule or the other side. Mm -hmm. So both cations and anions can be attracted to the molecule, chelating it in essence and holding it so that we don't lose it. Right. So, um, you know, um, for example, in, uh, in, in, uh, 
northeastern part of the country, the soils are very acidic. And uh, they're acidic because they're low in nutrients. They don't have very many minerals in them. And uh, because of the parent rock that they came from, the parent rock didn't have minerals either. And so farmers will lime their soil, you know, so that they don't have the, uh, uh, the disease problems caused by a lack of calcium. They'll lime their soil. But the problem is every time it rains, the lime will just leach through the soil and disappear. Mm-hmm. The soil, um, the, you know, lime or calcium has a, uh, it's a cation that so has a positive charge. And the soil particle has a negative charge. Well, of the negative charge of the soil, what we call the electrical negativity factor or cation exchange capacity, if it's weak, then it's not going to grab any of that calcium and it just whoop, leaches down into the groundwater and you lose it. Or you're fertilizing with a nitrogen fertilizer. And as the fertilizer goes through the nitrogen cycle in the soil, it eventually turns into a nitrate. And a nitrate has a negative charge. Your soil has a negative charge. And anyone who's ever played with magnets knows that when you try to put, put negative facing negative, they repel each other. Mm-hmm. Right? So the nitrate is repelled by the soil particle because it's negative and negative. And then the water, the irrigation water or the rain, leaches the nitrate down into your groundwater. And now we just polluted the groundwater with nitrates. Right. Well, if we could put something in the soil that had a powerful positive charge, then it could grab a hold of that nitrate and it won't leach. And you get better use of your nitrogen fertilizer. And we all know that you know, 90% or more of the fertilizer that a farmer buys never gets used by the crop. Right. So this is a way to um, help a farmer not have to buy as much fertilizer. And uh, can, because remember, 90, 90% or more never gets used anyway. So, well, let's back off uh, 90% yeah. so that the 10% gets used. It stays in the soil and gets used. Yeah. Huge savings to the farmer. 